Space. Spatiul. Raimdfart. Spasu. Uchu. El espacio. It's for everyone. Todos. Toată lumea. Iedereen. Today we're going to talk to Gary Watros, a flight controller who worked at NASA through Gemini and Apollo. He'll share his journey, including the untold story of the man who saved the moon landing. Welcome to the Space for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brian Ramos, and on this podcast, we're typically going to be talking international interdisciplinary space. That means we're going to be looking at projects from different countries, and we're going to be looking at unique aspects of the space industry. However, on this episode, we're going domestic. We're talking Apollo, we're talking Gemini program, and we're talking to Gary Watros, who was a flight controller during these two programs. The reason I wanted to talk to Gary was, for one, he lives about 30 minutes away, and I'm a Rhode Islander, so if he had been 45 minutes, you know what, I'd say forget it, I don't need a podcast, let me find some other kind of work, this isn't, this isn't necessary. However, uh, the real reasons I wanted to talk to Gary were, uh, for one, he had this great story about a gentleman who solved a problem that essentially saved the moon landing and went unrecognized. And for another, Gary really just has some interesting stories to tell from his time at NASA. So before we got into any of that, I asked him very simply, well, how did he get into the space program at that time? Well, I joined in 1964. I, was, I had just graduated from uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute uh, in June of that year. And back in those days, jobs were, engineering jobs were easy to come by. I interviewed for four, with four companies at, at, at Rensselaer, um, or four outfits. And all four gave me a job, and uh, I thought, well, where will I, where will I go? And I visited a couple of the commercial um, sites, and the other two were, were were government. And somebody called me from the, the manned spacecraft center and talked to me for a while, and you know, I, I couldn't understand really what he was talking about because it was all jargon. He was just speaking in acronyms and <laughs> on and on and on. So I finally came down to this. I thought, well, I've never been to Texas. I think I'll take that one. You know, the <laughs> luck of the draw. I mean, it's it? just, you know, uh, it wasn't any sort of in-depth knowledge or clairvoyance or whatever. Just I'd never been to Texas. So, so I drove down there um, in my MG Midget. And it was burned to a crisp by the time I got there. And that was in uh, July of 1964. And they threw us right into things. Um, it was only um, less, it was no more than a month after I had arrived. I found myself in a meeting with members of the astronaut crew and other people from the center. And the question was, should we go digital? Or should we remain analog with respect to displays on the spacecraft? And I was representing flight operations. Mm-hmm. And um, the decision was mine. I said, well, I think we should go digital. And it was a big issue at the time because pilots were used to you know, meters and dials and all that sort of thing, as were the flight controllers in, in Mission Control. Um, but the decision was made to go analog, go analog, digital rather, uh, in the spacecraft. And I'd, I'd been with NASA for a month. So that was, 
I thought that was I thought that was quite interesting that they would trust me to make a, you know, participate in that kind of decision. Well, there you have it. Gary ends up picking this job simply because he's never been to Texas, ends up being part of one of the greatest times in the history of space exploration and certainly space exploration in the United States. He also mentions that after only one month of being there, he's making decisions that are going to affect how spacecraft are designed in the future. And so this probably gives us an idea of the accelerated pace in the the environment at that time of Americans trying to get to the moon. Now, Gary went on to talk about his experience in the Gemini program, which included a story about a group of people from Madagascar that presumably weren't too happy that an NASA station was there. So the first, the first program that I participated in was the Gemini program, and, um, which wasn't my long-term program, but that I, I had to cut my teeth on that. And so I was... Uh, I learned all I could about the Gemini spacecraft, and then in the summer of 65, um, I was sent to, we had a station in Guaymas, Mexico, on the, on the coast. And in the Gemini program, um, the data was not remoted back to Houston yet. And so when the spacecraft was over an individual tracking station, the flight controllers that were sent out from Houston were in charge of the mission, period. Uh, there were, and we were at this station uh, on the coast. Um, there were five of us. Two were medics. And then there were three systems people. And um, I was responsible for uh, at, least, at least part of the Gemini capsule monitoring that. So when... The spacecraft was within sight of that uh, station for, I forget how many minutes, it was, it was a matter of, of, of minutes, maybe about 15 minutes. If, some, if a decision had to be made to cancel the mission, to whatever, the decision was made there by those people. Because okay. there was, Houston was not set up yet, Houston didn't have data. So, you know, I was there and it was, gee, I'd been with NASA for a little, maybe a little over a year. And um, that was quite an adventure. Um, those remote sites were interesting, um, both in the Gemini, uh, Mercury and Gemini programs. And there was, there was an interesting story. I wasn't particularly involved in this, but this was an interesting story. We had a station in Madagascar on the island. And... Um, it was in remote country, and um, during one of the missions, I don't know which one it was, it must have been one of the Mercury missions, there was some sort of problem with the natives. And nat- native, armed natives attacked the station. Now, this is with spears and bows and arrows, and, and we're talking about the, fourth, you know, the, the, the frontier of technology inside the gate, and you've got... <laughs> Uh, native people attacking it and and uh, guards fending them off in the middle of a space mission. I thought that was rather <laughs> rather rather a contrast, a clash of of civilizations. Of course. And what what sparked that? <laughs> I have no idea. I never knew. I never knew. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. I never knew. Um, so. 
that was that was the extent of my participation in uh, in Gemini. Back in my day in the office, we had to fend off bows and arrows, not just water cooler talk. I thought uh, I thought that was a pretty cool story. Actually, I haven't been able to find anything on uh, what actually happened. And let me tell you, I looked hard. I went at least two, maybe even three pages into my Google search. I even checked Wikipedia. I didn't. I didn't actually do that. Anyway, if anybody actually knows uh, something about this or even, you know, a different sort of scenario that has to do with these uh, old NASA stations, uh, please reach out. I'd love to actually hear a little bit more and hear what the story was and what the, the issue actually was. Our conversation continued with me asking Gary, what was it like being in mission control during the moon landing itself? And, and what was that feeling like just finally accomplishing what they had set out to do? Well, one of the things I find interesting is that um, we, were so, we were so immersed in, in the job that we had to do and confident in our individual and collective abilities that it never dawned on me, and I don't think it dawned on much of anybody, that we could fail. You know, Gene is, is <laughs> misquoted as saying failure is not an option. Um, but that was the that was the attitude. We didn't even we didn't even think of failure, yeah. um, and uh, we spent a lot of time prior to the Apollo program and in between each of those missions, creating what we called mission rules. Mm -hmm. And the mission rules um, were decisions made ahead of time in light of certain conditions. Mm -hmm. If certain failure occurred, what do we do? You know, do we, right. we switch to a backup and so forth? Or, or, or do we alter the mission or do we cancel the mission? Um, and so we spent our time, we systems people, spent our time knowing the systems, knowing where we had instrumentation, thinking of all of the things that could go wrong. How would we know it? Uh, how would we confirm it? What would we do when we'd confirm that we had a, a particular failure, a particular problem? Uh, those mission rules were the, were the basis of our decision-making. Uh, and in, in, doing those, in, in, in creating those mission rules, um, it forced us to really know what we were doing, really know what the systems were, um, how they worked, and how to, how to recognize when something wasn't right and what to do about it. It was, it was, it was, it was, an essential, it was essentially homework. Yeah. But it, it meant that um, when you got into a mission, most everything that could go wrong had been recognized and, and you had already thought about it in a common time, mm -hmm. uh, what was the best thing to do? Um, and so the mission rules were, were important for our training and also to make operations a hell of a lot easier when it came in real time. And so we tried to think of everything that could possibly <laughs> go wrong, but we obviously missed a few. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and that's that's the you know a collection of some of the best minds on the planet. Still, you know, uh, for example, with with Apollo thirteen, 
you know, the cryogenic tanks uh, had heaters which would turn on when you needed more gas for the fuel cells or environmental systems. And so, you know, we were totally prepared to say, well, okay, if that heater doesn't come on when it's supposed to, if it fails off, what do we do? And that all, that, all of that decision process was taken care of. The idea that it would come on and not go off didn't occur to anyone. And that's what happened. It came on, and it didn't go didn't off. <laughs> and the pressure kept building and building and building until the, the tank exploded. That was a failure mode that wasn't recognized. It was the kind of thing that wasn't really in the cards, wasn't really not possible. So the, the heart of mission rules were what we call failure mode and effects analysis. And uh, people who design systems would, would start out with that and then we would augment it. Uh, but things like a heater not turning off wasn't something that ever showed up in any of this. And uh, similarly with Apollo 1, when um, the astronauts uh, perished uh, on the Cape, uh, no one had really been paying attention to the fact that if you're in a 100% oxygen environment, what a spark can do. Right. Um, the connection had been, you know, we, our, the mission rules, at least certainly from our standpoint, and we're, you know, well, what do we do when we're on a mission? Um, now, there, there had to have been counterpart uh, thinking for those folks at the Cape. Um, you know, what do you do? How do you get them out if you've got these kinds of problems and so forth? But it, it, it just, again, escaped uh, think the, the thought process that, well, gee, you know, 100% oxygen environment, which is not normal during a mission, but was in the, in the Cape, um, that was a condition that just hadn't crossed anybody's mind. It wasn't anybody's fault. Wow, there is a lot there. Now, when I listened to that, one particular quote came to mind, and it's a favorite quote of mine by Virgil Grissom, who was an astronaut. And he said, if we die, we want people to accept it. We're in a risky business, and we hope that if anything happens to us, it will not delay the program. The conquest of space is worth the risk of life. Now, Virgil Grissom was one of the astronauts, one of the three astronauts that actually lost their lives in that fire. And the reason that that quote is so powerful is because it speaks to the idea that the people who are doing this, these uh, women and men who go out into space and people who work in the space industry to support them understand that it is a heavy risk understand that there could be losses moving forward but also understand that it's absolutely worth uh, the risk that comes along with it that to in order to search for answers about you know the most basic human questions who are we are we alone why are we here how did we get here where are we going? You know, going out and poking at the universe to try to solve, uh, try to find some answers to these problems, it takes a lot. But these people are willing to do it, and they understand that if we have losses, well, hey, not, let's not 
just stop looking. Let's not just stop trying. We understand that there are some risks involved, but they're worth it. It's one thing to read about these accidents and to try to understand what went wrong, but it's a different thing to try and understand what it was like actually being there. So I asked Gary, you know, what was the environment like um, after that unfortunate incident? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I remember that, that day very well. I had been on duty in Mission Control. It was a Friday. And uh, I, my shift was over, and I'd come home, and I, was, I had a party scheduled at my place. And the party was cranking up, and we were, we were having a good time. And uh, one of the attendees was a fellow who was on the subsequent shift. And when his shift was over, he came and joined the party, and he told us what happened. And, we, and it's just like we just all quietly just left. It was so sobering, um, his description of what he heard was just chilling, um, because you know, the voice, voice was, was alive. Right. Um, so after, after that, um, yeah, things came to an absolute stop, but we couldn't stop the overall program. You know, we were committed to landing a person on the moon in that decade. Um, but everyone, regardless of what your, what your primary responsibility was, everyone turned to and looked at, looked at the systems. We, we, we looked where, wherever there were flammable, uh, you know, lubricants and just everything. Went through the entire all the spacecraft, looking at all of the things that were flammable, and substitutes found that were not flammable. Um, the uh, hatch was redesigned so it could be opened in something less than many minutes. Um, and as I recall, and uh, you know, I, it was about an eighteen-month hiatus. Um, but we were pretty confident that we'd thought of everything we could think of mm -hmm. and done everything we could to um, minimize the chances of something like that ever happening again. And I, and I think I think we were successful in that. Yeah. And then we picked up, uh, you know, and kept on with the program. Yeah. But uh, it was sobering. It was sobering. And I think... I think it was like the day after the fire, or the, certainly the first day back at work, uh, when we came in and on everybody's blackboard in all of our offices was written words tough and competent. And I think it was Gene Kranz who went around after work and did that. Um, I think those are, you know, ideal still used today, right? And then, oh yeah, are still yeah. Uh, yeah. part of the models. And like I said, we, um, you know, we were not we were not discouraged in what happened. In in at least our our confidence that we would land somebody on the moon in that decade, and that was not that was not really shaken. 
And I said, okay, we got, you know, we ran into a problem. Let's get it fixed, but let's get on with the program. Let's let's make it happen. And, right. And so we did. Yeah. Tough and competent. I love that. I'd like to think that I'm pretty competent. Uh, tough is maybe more of a stretch. I think, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago, I watched uh, American Idol where this deaf girl sang a song, and I, I think I cried like a baby for, for about 10 minutes. You know what? I'm, I'm not ashamed, okay? I'm also allowed to have feelings. Anyway, I really appreciated this idea of failure is not an option that kept coming up, you know, because it wasn't just a phrase, but it seems like through Gary's words that that really was, um, you know, the feeling in these group of people is this idea that uh, not can we do it, will we do it, but okay, here's the next problem, how do we solve it? Here's the next challenge, how do we get past it? Um, and so I had to go ahead and ask him, well, where does this phrase come from in the first place? Well, as I understand it, uh, it in the filming of, I think it was the movie Apollo 13, mm. um, Gene had been interviewed and, and um, the folks that had been talking to him after, after that was over and were, were leaving the the uh, TV, the, the movie production people, um, in a conversation, uh, one of them used the phrase, failure is not an option, to characterize the attitude. Uh, and it got attributed to, that, to Gene Kranz because that had been the conversation that had just preceded this offline conversation. Um, but certainly it's something he would have said, and, and he has said it since. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I have a copy of his book by that title, and uh, very nicely inscribed to me from Gene. Nice. Yeah, Great. yeah we, we had the honor of uh, listening to him talk um, when I was an intern down at, at the Johnson Space Center. Um, and he, you know, even when he's talking normally, he talks like he's on the Discovery Channel or something, just, you know, very inspirational and, you know. He is. And he did an intro to this Kickstarter campaign to restore Mission Control, uh, which was, which was very effective, I thought. Yeah. And um, I just got something yesterday. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but it, it, it was a, uh, an acknowledgement of, uh, of the success of that effort and, uh and again, he's he's expounding on that and, and what's going to happen with with our old mission control. And uh, but as I said, you know, we're two years from now. I've, I I haven't been back. I have not been back. I haven't been back to Texas. Oh really? Not at all. Um, well, yeah, I went to Austin a couple times to visit family, but I haven't been back to Houston since I left in 1970. Oh wow. So it will be. Um, It'll be uh, 50 years. Wow. Well, yeah. One of uh, one of the things that they do now um, in the Apollo Mission Control Center is when the interns come in, they'll have at least one time where they watch Apollo 13 actually in the uh, historic Apollo uh, Mission Control. Oh, watch, watch <laughs> and the so, yeah, you'll watch sit there, the and of course, everybody tries to get the flight director seat. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's uh, it's interesting to see all the consoles and how different it was, and you know the little pneumatic tube systems. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <That's what> it... <laughs> well, yeah, you know we were it was cutting edge technology. We had five IBM three sixties. We had the biggest computer complex in the world, as far as we knew. Wow. 
Um, and, you know, the smartphone you just pulled out of your pocket could run circles around it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've seen the movie um, uh, Hidden Figures, um, I came on just at, as that era of you know, manual calculation of all these things had then been turned over to to the uh, the big machines. Um, so I came just just as that as the movie ended. That's when I walked in the door. More power in the little device in our pockets and our little smartphone than they had in these giant computer systems that got us to the moon. Where do we use it? To get to Jupiter? To get to Mars? To get to Alpha Centauri? No. We use it for Flappy Bird. What is wrong with us, guys? I think I've checked my text messages like 40 times since I started recording this thing. I don't have anything new. Okay? There's nothing there. It's like a powerful machine of sadness right now. All right, so now we get to a really exciting part of the podcast. It's one of the big reasons that I wanted to talk to Gary because he had told me at a, a different event, okay, we socialized. That's right. I'm the in I'm in the in crowd. I'm not in the in crowd. But he did tell me a story about a gentleman who saved the moon landing by solving a problem last minute. And he mentions that this isn't recorded anywhere and I had a problem with that. I wanted to make sure that this was on record somewhere. And so, here it is. Yes, in fact, I, I sent an email to uh, Gene Krantz um, oh, probably, probably a year ago about this because I wanted, uh, in the telling of, of Apollo 11, um, there are people um, like S- uh, Steve Bales who are who called correctly the uh, the computer error um, as a as a misread and the, the, we could continue the mission um, but there were there were lots of heroes and uh, I was on the console with uh, with Don Putty who was my immediate supervisor we were manning the uh, the lunar module uh, environmental control electrical power communications console um, and uh, in the mission rules that, that I had talked about earlier, um, one of the important things that determined whether or not we could continue during the descent phase was the availability of information, availability of data. Um, the data was transmitted through a steerable antenna, high-gain antenna, back to the Earth. Um, but the mission rules, as we worked them out, said that um, we had to have data on systems uh, at certain points in the in the descent. If we didn't have the data, we had no idea if anything was going wrong or whatever, and we would have to abort the mission. And um, there were there were there was a, a window during the dis- descent phase um, where, you know, we could have limited data, but once we got to a certain point, we had to have data for the landing phase. And uh, as we approached that point, that go-no-go no go point, which said, according to the mission rules, if we don't have data at this point, we have to abort. We cannot land. Um 
you know, I'm watching it and Don's watching it and um, we're not, we don't have the data. We don't have data. We, we are, it's in and out and then it's mostly out and then it's all out. And we have come up to the point which, which in our mission rules say um, we have to abort. And I don't know where Don got it from. But Don said, rotate the spacecraft 30 degrees. That was immediately relayed to the capsule communicator, which is the astronaut on the ground, and re immediately relayed to them. Rotate 30 degrees. We had never, we had never, we had never come up upon this before. Mm -hmm. We had never really, um, you know, there were there were there were failures that we knew, which would mean we wouldn't have data. We didn't have those failures. We just were not getting data. And uh, so Don's Don said, rotate the the spacecraft 30 degrees, and without question. Um, that that command was passed to the crew, and they rotated. What happened then was that apparently part of the, as you as you're coming down in 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 the descent phase, and you're looking actually at the Earth through the landing structure of the lunar module. Apparently, the 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 structure was in the line of sight between the steerable antenna and the Earth. And by rotating 30 degrees, it opened the window back up to get the data through to, to Houston. And at the critical moment, we were ready to punch out of there. The data came in, and it stayed solid from there on down. And Don saved the mission. But he never was given credit for that, and he never sought credit for that. But I, I relayed that to Gene about a year ago. I didn't hear back from him. Um, but I wanted... Uh, Don passed away more than 10 years ago. Wow. Uh, but I wanted... I wanted that on the record. Yeah. Um, because that wasn't... I read Gene's book on Apollo 11, and it wasn't in there. And so I... I wanted it on the record. Yeah. And what, what was Don's full name? Don Putty, P-U-D-D-Y. Don Putty. Don Putty. Yeah, and that, I'm, this is one of the, the crucial reasons I wanted to talk to you and, and hear these stories because I imagine that there's a lot of individuals who, you know, uh, were very important in making these, you know, milestones possible that um, aren't always recognized. Um, the, the, the whole team, uh, you know, in it, it's... I, th I think the I think media and the public likes to be able to identify with. There's a tendency to want to identify with an individual, and certainly uh, public identifies with Gene Cranston, rightly so. Um, but um, I think there's a, a tendency to want to elevate some of the the working level echelon to to hero status and. Uh, uh, Certainly, as I said, Steve Bales uh, received that recognition, and rightfully so. Um, but in 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 comparing the two cases, the situation where Steve Bales said that's a false alarm had actually been simulated 
in, in our practice missions. Uh, whereas with Don, it had not been practiced. No one had thought of this. No one had thought of the fact that at some point as you're coming down this descent trajectory that this, the structure of the, the landing pads and all that stuff is in the way. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize that. Right. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'd like to see Don get some credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. And was that, you said that, that um, you know, his suggestion of rotate the, the spacecraft 30 degrees was taken without question. Was that because of the urgency of that window closing? Or, you know, was there just a confidence in the knowledge of the individuals in that room pretty, pretty much always? I think there was basically a confidence that if somebody was, was clear and, and, and said something, and that a that that person was was believable because we were we we were the best and the brightest to be honest, um, and the urgency. Um, I'm sure Gene Krantz knew at the time that we were we were. In fact, I think we went just a little bit past the time, and so there wasn't time to have, to talk about it, mm-hmm. and uh, so it immediately was relayed and immediately done, and and, and it saved the mission. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you, I, are there other people that you think, um, or you know, memories like that that from different um, missions in that era that aren't recognized, or uh, I guess small stories that stick out in your mind that maybe wouldn't make a, a headline, but are you feel are very important? Well, I, I think of Apollo thirteen, and I and I think of the movie, and I think the movie did as good a job as you could expect. Uh, relaying what went on and and the seriousness of it all um but you know they took poetic license and and need, need needed to um and in apollo 13 there's sort of like a, a number of us are sort of coalesced into a figure and, and it was in the part where they're wrestling about how to how to use the um the, the CO2 cartridges, the ones that scrub the CO2 from the oxygen, use the ones that we we had a, a lot of uh, in a system that they weren't designed for, the square peg in the round hole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was it was a bunch of us uh, around a table um, kicking things around, uh, which was coalesced down in the movie into pretty much an individual. Um but it really, it really always was about about a team, and uh, and, and uh, that that was, you know, it's the team that really uh, is the hero. Well, there you go. That is how Don Putty saved the moon landing. I think that these kinds of stories are really important to put down because you know every time I look at some space news article or space news website, rather. You know, there's another person from this era that has passed, and with them goes so much more. It comes all these knowledge, all this knowledge, all these stories. Um, there is so much there. Uh, so I was really happy that Gary was able to share this with me. And when you're listening to the story, it's easy to get lost in in kind of the the details. And you say, "Well, data coming back. We didn't have data coming back. Well, what's the big deal?" And a space mission, data is very important. That's all the information that's coming back to you, it might be uh, information telling you something about the astronaut health. It's communication, which is, uh, you know, your tie down to the ground team, basically down to your landline. 
Um, it's your ability to communicate with a spacecraft in some cases. And so Don Putty was able to recognize the problem, understood it uh, so well that he was able to recognize that, know what the corrective action would be, say it confidently, and make something happen to uh, you know, enable our astronauts to land on the moon. And that takes a lot of guts. That is tough and competent to be able to go ahead and say, this is the problem, try this, right? I mean, to be that decisive. The other day, I was trying to decide whether I wanted to eat a slice of pizza or bake a pretzel. And that took me a good 20 to 25 minutes. And you know what? I think I finished that pretzel and I dwelled on the fact that maybe I hadn't made the right choice. Okay? Making decisions under pressure. And let me tell you something. There's nothing easy about deciding between pizza and a pretzel. Uh, making decisions under uh, pressure when, you know, in this case, you're talking about astronaut lives. You're talking about, you know, are you going to be able to accomplish this thing that the entire country has been kind of pushing forward in the last decade that you've been responsible for? Uh, making that decision of that kind of pressure takes an absolute uh, tough and competent individual. And I'm very happy, I'm very honored to know um, this story about Don Putty. So please do not forget that name, Don Putty, hero of the moon landing. Absolutely incredible. A story worth telling, a story worth remembering. Now, Don Putty went on to be a flight director and was actually the flight director for the first space shuttle mission. So now, up to this point in the conversation, we had covered uh, Gary's history up to Apollo 11. And we had talked a little bit about that idea amongst the flight controllers of uh, uh, not thinking about, you know, the fact that they could fail. It was kind of like, let's just figure this out and make it happen. And what I asked Gary was, well... Was that feeling the same during Apollo 13 when many different issues uh, were threatening the crew's life? Well, we were in totally uncharted territory. I mean, we, we had to um, ask the lunar module to do a number of things for which it was never designed. And we had to make this stuff as we went along. It was... Um, I guess at times you could say it was it was frantic. We were we were we were in uncharted territory. It wasn't like it, the mission. We didn't have mission rules anymore because we had not even in, the, in our wildest imagination could have conceived of this kind of situation. So we were making it up as we went along. We didn't have these pre-digested and considered decisions to go by. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really flying by the seat of your pants. And um, I was not on duty for that mission, but I came in anyway, and many others did too. And we just, we just uh, stopped what we were doing and, and tried to find some way we could contribute mm -hmm. uh, to the solutions. Um, uh, you know, to use the lunar module first, to use its descent engine, which was supposed to, you know, land it on the moon, to use that engine to uh, break out of lunar orbit, pushing the command and service module, you know, A, it wasn't designed for that. B, we never even thought about, how, you know, 
that was the only thing we we had to do it um uh and then to use it to to break to get into earth orbit um it was all uh, all unprecedented and it was it was an amazing um feat i think that the team was able to say okay what what options do we have what could we do and forget whether or not we are familiar with it let's 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 keep things on the table and sort it out it was it was really a truly amazing um process to see it unfold mm-hmm. um but we came closer to losing them than than the movie or the world ever knew and uh, this this I want you to check with NASA now let me explain that last part. Uh, when Gary and I sat down to talk, he had mentioned that there were some things that he weren't sh- he wasn't sure if should be talked about, um, or you know what the rules were in you know him discussing some of his past involvement with the agency. And so I told him, well, if there's anything uh, you want me to ask uh, NASA to make sure that it's okay, um, they would go ahead and include it on the podcast. I'll go ahead and do that, and that is exactly uh, what he was pointing out there. So. What I will do is go ahead and send that off and then promise to put it up on the podcast as soon as it gets greenlit. But I'll just go ahead and say uh, they've been hiding aliens from us the entire time. No, 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 no. I'm just kidding. I'm only joking. Only joking is about Apollo 13. But anyway, uh, if you don't know uh, about Apollo 13, if you haven't watched the movie with Tom Hanks, seriously, go out, get it, go watch it. Um it does a pretty good job of representing the real-life events, um, and really, it's just a great movie. So at this point, I was really enjoying the conversation, uh, talking about Apollo and Gemini and kind of the golden age of space. is always very interesting. Uh, sometimes I worry a little bit because we have this uh, strong nostalgia for this era, and I worry that maybe there isn't as much of a focus on the current space now. And on this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about Uh, space projects that are going on now and so i had to ask gary well what was it like after landing on the moon you know you're in that room you have this great you know sense of accomplishment uh is any part of you you know immediately thinking about what's coming next what's coming ahead where are we going to go next or is it kind of a more of a feeling of all right we've accomplished what we came here to accomplish and uh now it's time to go home and get some rest rest and uh here's what he had to say well, while I was still there, I I turned my attentions away from the Apollo program um, because my boss's boss had moved from flight operations to a new office that had been set up to uh, uh, establish a lunar base. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this is this happened several times. This, this was not un not uncommon. Um, I wasn't asked to, but I took a I took a look at, at their plans. And um, I wasn't in their office. I was still where I was in in, uh, in flight operations. But I looked at what they were what they were planning, the base and so forth, and I did some calculations on what it would take just to, once they'd established it, what it would take to just keep it going. Mm-hmm. 
and this with the size of the base and the number of people and how much food and oxygen and supplies and so forth they needed, I calculated that we would have to launch a Saturn V every other day, I think it was, or every other week in order just to supply that. So I wrote this up and I sent it to them. And they said, oh my God, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. We can't do this. And shut the office down. Wow. So, uh, <coughs> and now there's lots of talks about moon base and Mars base and all that. What's, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I have, I'm, <coughs> I'm not convinced that a lunar base buys as much of anything. And I know logistically it's, it's a lot of work to keep anything of any size going on the lunar surface. I, I'm not convinced. You know, I think if, if, if you're going to go, you have to, you have to plan on, on going to Mars. I think it would siphon off too much time, too much money, too much attention to have a base. And I don't think the base itself merits much. I, I, I'm not convinced. I'm with, I'm with Buzz. So you say go, go right to Mars. Yeah. Now you notice a couple things about that clip. Uh, for one, at a certain point, uh, you can hear me dying, which is uh, to say that I was uh, losing my ability to exist on this uh, earth. Um, actually, I just had a cough. And Gary's great, so he just kept on trucking through, continuing to tell me interesting things as tears were rolling down my eyes. I like that he talked about uh, the moon base being something that, you know, maybe would be too expensive and pull too many resources. So let's just go to Mars instead. Um, and I love that because, you know, no part of that was let's stop exploring. It was just like, let's pick the destination that makes more sense to go to. And then he says, I'm with Buzz, meaning Buzz Aldrin, of course, the man who landed on the moon and is a big supporter of going to Mars. And he didn't stop there. He continued on to share some stories of uh, times he spent with Buzz Aldrin. One of my fond recollections is the day I spent with Buzz Aldrin. It was just, just the two of us, all day. Um, it was prior to Apollo 11, and he was assigned to Apollo 11, and of the three flight crew, he was, he was going to be the one that knew the most about the backpack that they were going to wear on the lunar surface. So uh, I was tasked to spend a day with Buzz telling him everything that I thought he needed to know and answer whatever questions he had about the backpack because that was part of our, my responsibility too, was to monitor the... Uh, we had, I think, 27 pressures, temperatures, voltages, and so forth that we were able to monitor on the systems that were in the backpack. You know, they had to provide communications, electric power, environmental control. And um, so, yeah, I spent a, a day just just me and Buzz. That was cool. Yeah. Um, one other recollection, too, I remember. It was after... Well, it had to have been one of the uh, practice missions for Apollo 11. The, it was all over. Uh, the, mission, the, the practice mission was over, and we we're sitting around. Um, there were a couple guys from, from Mission Control, and Neil and Buzz. It was like four or five of us just sitting around. And I remember... Um, Somebody asked them if they had come up with a name for their spacecraft yet. 
And they said, no, they hadn't gotten around that. So I remember I, I said, well, you know, this mission is, is comparable to Columbus's mission. And you have three spacecraft. I, I said, I, especially, I said, I don't think Nina Pinta and the Santa Maria is appropriate. <laughs> but, you know, I, I said, if I were trying to name it, I would, you know, I would keep um, Columbus's voyage in mind because it is that historic. And I like to think maybe I planted a seed because the uh, service module was Columbia. Well, there you go. Two stories of Gary hanging out with Buzz Aldrin. Uh, that was before Buzz was, you know, hanging out with Optimus Prime and the Transformers uh, or yelling at the moon with Liz Lemon. If you don't get either of those references, that means you probably have uh, a lot more of a life than I do. Um, so congratulations. Buzz Aldrin, by the way, is the chancellor of my former university, the International Space University. Uh, so he's very big supporter of global space, which is great. Buzz, please come on the podcast. Shout out to you. Thank you for everything you've done. At this point, I got a little more serious with Gary and asked him if he was disappointed with the progress that we've made since the Apollo era, or if he thought that things had progressed naturally. Well, the pace is has slowed but the the impetus isn't there you know it was the cold war that pushed us to do what we did right um and i remember in apollo 11 the rumor was circulating around mission control that the russians had a spacecraft on the way to the moon um and was going to they were going to get there ahead of us they were going to land and steal our thunder we didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but the, the rumor was circulating. And in fact, they did have a spacecraft. It wasn't manned, but we didn't know that. Um, and it didn't land because it failed. And did I tell you I met my counterpart? Uh, to, my counterpart in Mission Control in Russia. Um, I met him at a party in Newport. <laughs> in Newport? <laughs> in Newport, yeah, yeah. This was back in 2000. Four, um, and we got talking. He was, he was, he was my counterpart, and we got talking about this fact that you know we were concerned that they were going to beat us at the punch. And he said, "Well, yeah, we did. We did have a spacecraft. It wasn't manned, but he said you really shouldn't have worried because our spa- our systems were so unreliable that when we were trying to land the sucker, the our, our first level communications failed. Backup, backup." that failed the backup to that failed and we crashed he said you really really didn't have much to worry about <laughs> what did that feel like to meet you know uh somebody that was special that that was special just you know to, at a at a party to run into somebody who you know i think we both felt the same way it was just you know oh my god yeah yeah uh, it was it was it was cool now that was an incredible story I had no idea that the Russians had sent a spacecraft at the same time that the Americans did uh, in order to try to beat uh, the Americans to the moon. I imagine meeting your counterpart uh, during that time would have been amazing as well. And we had a professor at the International Space University. I had a professor named Nikolai Tolyarenko, one of the greatest uh, people I will ever meet, have ever met. Uh, and he actually worked in Russia during the Cold War, during the space race. 
And the amount of knowledge uh, behind this individual was incredible. And we don't often think of the other side. We don't think of or we don't learn about the Russian history uh, of the space program. But they were the first people to put a man in space. I mean, we launch our astronauts on uh, Soyuz Russian you know, spacecraft. And so uh, one of the things that we were able to do as a result of this professor was go to Moscow. And so when I went to Moscow, I was able to, you know, kind of get an idea of the space culture. And it's absolutely incredible. I mean, the pride there is insane. You see statues, museums, sculpture, art, all of this pride um, behind space exploration and their accomplishments in it um, at that time and currently. And so it's very inspiring to see. And it's great to hear about you know, sort of, quote-unquote, the other side. Um, and it's very important. It's a, it's a very important half of the story. And so I urge you to look that up if you're not familiar with uh, the space exploration history from the Russian perspective. And that, by the way, is also a great testament to the power of space exploration in an international environment, in a global scale. You know, we talk about us versus the Russians when we're talking about the Apollo program and the race to the moon and the race to put somebody in space. But we work with the Russians now. Our space station, you know, is a, a combined effort. It's a internet. It's called the International Space, you know, Space Station. These are not our competitors anymore. These are people that we're cooperative in space. And space can be a place that can bring different countries together, can allow us to work together in something that's positive, in something that uh, requires coordination, and it's something that really is, you know, uh, about human nature, about, you know, up there on the International Space Station, there are no borders. You know, you don't see borders from space. You don't see those divisions. And so it's really a testament to how space can bring us closer together. Now, nearing the end of our conversation, uh, Gary started talking a little bit about you know, what would it really take to top the moon landing? Well, to some extent, it, you know, it, it, it can't be that level. It would have to be something like a Mars mission. Yeah. And, and in that case, you know, a strong um, international effort that the whole world is behind that would that could rival that. Um, and that, that may well happen someday. Um, yeah. I probably won't live to see it. Um, but, you know, I think it has to be something of that magnitude. That, yeah. And, and if, if you're lucky and you're part of that, then there's glory to be had. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's nice to hear you say that uh, it should be an international endeavor. And um, I remember Chris Kraft speaking to us, and he said, you um, speak about the International Space Station. He said, look, the, the reason we pitched it as an International Space Station is not because uh, necessarily we, we needed it to be international, but because we were so used to programs being canceled. <laughs> and we knew that this was a way that we would have political pressure and funding and things that um, would That's keep, would keep the thing, you know, keep this thing flying. So there was this practical side in addition to, you know, uh, space, you know, should be an international endeavor for very human reasons as well. Um, but I, yeah, I've never forgotten that. Keep that in mind. Uh, yeah, it, I hadn't really thought about that, but he's he is right. It's uh, 
there is an impetus not to let down, you know, on your, in your uh, international obligations. However, as as our current president shows, you can pull out of anything, <laughs> like climate change and and, yeah. uh, and that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, there is that there is that you know international obligation, which you know it, it's. But it, even that is hard to compete with the kind of intense pressure that the Cold War had on the United States. I mean, you know, we were willing to spend whatever it took to beat them at whatever. Right. You know, more missiles or uh, first man on the moon, it didn't matter. It, 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 the, the country was so caught up in that, that, um, you know, the... Apollo program at the time was twenty billion dollars, which in today's money is, would be about maybe uh, one hundred fifteen billion, something like that. It was a it was a big ticket item, but money wasn't an object. Yeah, it was, you know, we were, we we're going to beat those rescues. You know, right? <laughs> I remember in nineteen fifty seven, my mother coming into my bedroom. I was uh, fifteen at the time, and she said. Russians have put a satellite in orbit. She woke me up to tell me that. <laughs> oh my God! You know that yeah. really shook us up. Yeah, shook the whole country up. That's crazy. Um, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Even when I uh, did my internship there, that you know, uh, you, you have a sense that some things are, are left over because you'll say they'll say, okay, JAXA, ISA, the Russians. Anytime you talk about, it's never Roscosmos, it's always the Russians are doing this and the Russians are doing that. And I think that's probably something that's kind of left over throughout the years. It's, it's, there's still some of that. <laughs> yeah, there's still yeah. some of that. I have to say I agree with Gary. Let's get ourselves somewhere else like uh, to Mars and let's do it internationally. You know, it's really important to leverage that not just because it's smart, because you have more resources, more knowledge, different ways of tackling problems, uh, uh, political pressures, and all these practical reasons. But because, again, we're answering questions that are, are very inherent in human nature and being alive. And that, you know, that simple fact makes it something, makes it a journey that is not just about Americans or Russians or Europeans. It's about every living person on this earth. So let's do it together. Gary ended our conversation by telling us about uh, his exiting and bowing out of NASA. You know, I knew at the time, I, I knew after Apollo 11, I knew it was going to become bureaucratic. It was going to become the, 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 the nation and the world's attention wasn't going to be riveted on this. And I didn't want to stick around. And that's why I left. Um, you know, I knew it was going to be budgetary concerns and on and on. And so um, I, I, I left on purpose. Most of my colleagues, many if not most, stayed um, and retired from, from there. Um, and they had good careers and, 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 and I'm sure uh, enjoyed, you know, even after the, the, the height of the glory was, was <laughs> over. I... Um, I kind of likened it to, uh, you know, a prize fighter and, and uh, uh, quitting uh, boxing when you've won the crown and, and not just hang on. And, you know, it's, it's a time that's just not going to be repeated. Right. This is the first time that uh, humankind had put uh, 
one of their own uh, on a foreign body. You just, there's never another first like that. Never another first like that, indeed. And I got to tell you, I really enjoyed this conversation with Gary Watros. I hope you did as well. I feel like I learned a ton and I could sit and listen to him talk forever. Uh, We learned about Don Putty, a man who saved the moon landing, somebody who deserves to be remembered. We learned a little bit about the Russian space program. We learned a little bit about experiences in Gemini. And really, uh, there was so much. We even continued the conversation a little bit uh, off mic with some, you know, Apollo era pranks and, and really some great things. So I really, I'm really appreciative in the time that he gave to this podcast. We're going to end now with some final words from Gary. I, 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 I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be able to... Uh tell some of my tales yeah (laughs) definitely Uh, it was it was a time thanks for joining us on the space for everyone podcast where we talk about international interdisciplinary space i hope you had a good time please listen in next time my name is brian ramos your host signing off